Hi, I'm Maya Contreras, and it's the 4th of July. I know a lot of folks out there aren't feeling very patriotic, and I completely empathize. It's difficult to feel patriotic when you think about what's happening at the border and with reproductive rights and the fact there are freaking military tanks rolling down our streets in Washington, D.C. that took over $2.5 million away from our national parks, but I digress. One of the reasons I wanted to do a 4th of July podcast episode is because I wanted to touch on a few issues that are keeping many people in our country from fully participating in our democracy, like gerrymandering, and how the biases in our political reporting is damaging our discourse. But I also wanted to touch on something that might inspire you, maybe just a little bit. In 488 days, we have a chance once again to set the tone of what we want out of this country. And I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to save my sparklers for Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. In this episode, I speak with Meg Heckman. Meg is an assistant professor of journalism at Northeastern University. I also speak with Rebecca Sieve, author of Vote Her In, your guide to electing our first woman president. But first, I speak with Ben Williams. Ben is a legal analyst and serves as the lead for the Princeton Gerrymandering Project's research and organizational partnerships. The Princeton Gerrymandering Project supports state and federal level reform efforts to eliminate partisan gerrymandering. They identify opportunities and loopholes in existing law that shape how district maps are drawn. They also help analyze and craft reform language to help activists translate their ideas into practical solutions. Hmm, that's very nice of them. I had an incredibly informative conversation with Ben about gerrymandering in the census. The interview you'll hear now is an excerpt from that full interview, which I will have up early next week. For now, here is Ben Williams. Gerrymandering is the process of drawing district lines with the intent of achieving some ill-gotten or illicit objective. I think it's the most general definition. Yeah. Uh, your listeners have probably heard about it most frequently in the press as partisan gerrymandering, which is drawing district lines with the intent of favoring one party over another. But it could also be racial gerrymandering, which mm-hmm. is the intentional sorting of voters on the basis of race uh, without doing so to comply with some existing law like the Voting Rights Act. Or it could be incumbent protection gerrymandering, uh, which is when politicians draw lines to keep themselves in power. And gerrymandering has been around since uh, the founding of the Republic. Uh, James Madison was famously uh, stuck into a gerrymandered district because he was a Federalist and uh, The people, uh, I think it was Patrick Henry, was drawing the first district in Virginia, that this congressional district, and he wanted James Monroe to get elected to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It didn't matter. James Madison won anyway. But, um, and then the phrase comes from Elbridge Gary, who was the governor of Massachusetts in 1812. And uh, he signed off on a a map that had some really convoluted-looking districts uh, around Boston and a Boston newspaper uh, said that one of the districts looked like a salamander. No, a gerrymander. And so <laughs> that is the completely dorky origin of the, of the phrase gerrymandering. Uh, but it's been around for a long time, obviously, if it's, we're talking about the late 1700s, early 1800s. Right. But uh, in the past 20 years or so, as uh, data sets have gotten more sophisticated. Uh, People have become more polarized in their voting. There isn't as much split ticket voting now as there was uh, maybe when Bill Clinton was elected for the first time in 92. And so it's easier to predict how people will vote. And if you have that information about how people vote, you have where they live and you can use some modeling to predict how many people will move in and out of a district and how, uh, different areas may grow in population or decrease in population over time, uh, it's possible with the existing software to, to design maps that uh, produce pretty reliable political outcomes over time. And that's, that's the real change over the right. past 20 years. The, it used to be that you, there was a lot of guesswork and a gerrymander uh, may break or backfire because people guessed incorrectly. But, right. n- but now... 
that's increasingly less and less likely, and it's increasingly more and more likely that a, a gerrymander will be durable or will last throughout the entire decade. Yeah, because we have so much more data available just everywhere, you know. Exactly. Facebook, I mean, Twitter, yes. Everything, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So speaking of data, um, tell us a little bit how the census and gerrymandering relate to one another. Sure. So um, God, it's, a, it's a complicated relationship. So uh, <laughs> I think it's just easier to say that uh, states are required to redraw their district lines at the start of every decade. Uh, that's under the doctrine called one person, one vote, which says roughly that individuals um, should have an equal weighted vote for representatives representatives to legislative bodies. And that can be Congress, that can be a state legislature, that can be a city council. It, it goes up and down. Uh, the, the amount of uh, equity that you need at, at each level varies a little bit. You have line drawers have a little bit more flexibility in legislative seats. In congressional districts, you need exact numerical equality. Um, but uh, you obviously can't you can't draw lines without the census data, which uh, accounts for how many people live in an individual uh, area. And the census information is also critical to the nationwide reapportionment of seats because we have a fixed number of seats in Congress, 435. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as people move around from state to state, a state may gain or lose a congressional seat. So states that are typically growing, Texas is the fastest growing state. Texas is gaining multiple congressional seats every every uh, decade, and they're expected to gain up to three more wow. this cycle. So, uh, where and the states that are losing population are primarily in uh, the Northeast and the Rust Belt. So, uh, as people migrate south, um, you're going to see more and more uh, representation gravitate towards those uh, growing urban centers and the Sun Belt. So the census is obviously critical, and an accurate count in the census is critical uh, to make sure that when the Census Bureau is telling states how many seats they're going to have for the next decade, they actually know how many people are in that state. And, right. um, you know, that gets into the, the citizenship question cases, which, I, I, you know, we may touch on a little bit later. No, absolutely. Um, what effect does egregious partisan gerrymandering have on local state elections? I know you touched on them a little bit, but we we have some some really outrageous um, examples in Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Maryland that some people may not know about. Sure. So you you picked th- three of perhaps the most egregious of these gerrymanders. Uh, We'll start starting with Maryland. Maryland is probably the most notorious partisan gerrymander of the last cycle that was committed by Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, we know now from court documents that the state party leadership, including Governor O'Malley, were intent on turning the state's longstanding congressional delegation from six Democrats and two Republicans to seven Democrats and one Republican, right. and that they were successful in that effort for the entire decade. The district that encompasses the westernmost portions of Maryland, you know, this is Appalachia and farm country, um, you know, not a typically Democratic stronghold, but it's been represented by uh, none other than presidential candidate John Delaney. So mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, had solid dem- Democratic um, representation ever since, and there is no indication that that will change through uh, 2020. And the Maryland, that Maryland district in particular was one of the districts that was at issue in the U.S. Supreme Court cases that were decided last week. Right. Um, the other state that was involved in those cases was North Carolina. Uh, and North Carolina is both a racial gerrymander and a partisan gerrymander, which is common in the South because race is so correlated with party. Uh, right. African-American voters um, in the South almost uniformly vote uh, for Democrats and white voters in the South, although if you look at the data, it's actually less polarized in North Carolina than some other states. But in general, white voters in the South vote for Republicans. 
Um, yeah. North Carolina is one of the most evenly divided states in the country politically. If you look at election results uh, in almost any given election, it's almost exactly 50% of the vote goes to Democrats, 50% of the vote goes to Republicans. Uh, to give you an example of how severe the gerrymander this past decade has been, uh, in the 2010 midterm elections, which was the last election in which the old maps were used, um, okay. there were seven Democrats and six Republicans in the state's congressional delegation. Uh, but in that same election, Republicans swept into control of all of the levers of state power. And so they were in charge of drawing the new lines after the 2010 census data was transferred to them in 2011. Uh, and the legislature got going. They hired uh, a redistricting guru named Thomas Hoffler, uh, and uh, he designed maps that uh, acted exactly as intended. In 2012 and 2014, which were the two cycles in which those maps were in effect, North Carolina elected 10, or, sorry, 10 Republicans and three Democrats to Congress. Mm. Um, despite the two parties' share of the vote being roughly the same as it was in the 2000s when it was seven Democrat, six Republican. Right. And those maps were struck down as a racial gerrymander in 2015. Right. And in 2016, Tom Hoffler was hired to draw a remedial map, and he drew another map, which the state legislature was very clear. They said out loud that it was a partisan gerrymander, and that it was intended to elect 10 Democrats, or sorry, 10 Republicans and three Democrats because uh, Representative Lewis didn't believe it was possible to draw a map that elected 11 Republicans and two Democrats. Right. So, um, and that map was in effect in 2016, and uh, a slightly modified version was in effect in 2018, and that 10-3 Republican-Democrat uh, seat share has held despite the fact that in uh, the 2018 election, it was once again roughly 50-50 in the statewide vote. Wisconsin was your third state. It's, yeah. it's a similar story to North Carolina. It's roughly 50-50 politically. Uh, for example, uh, in 2008, Wisconsin's congressional delegation was five Democrats and three Republicans, uh, and Democrats won the statewide congressional vote by about 5%. Uh, in 2010, when Democrats lost the statewide congressional vote by 9%, uh, that flipped, and it became 5R3D, which right. seems normal. That's what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. But when Republicans drew the lines for the next decade following the census in 2011, the, they had one goal, which was to ensure that the 5-3 Republican-Democrat majority and the congressional delegation would never waver. And right. once again, they succeeded throughout the entire decade thus far. Each party has maintained its share of the seats, despite Democrats winning more congressional votes statewide than Republicans in all but one of the elections. In 2014, Republicans won more, but in 2012, 2016, and 2018, Democrats won more votes, but got three of the eight seats. Right. And it doesn't stop there. There's a continued um, trying to pull away and siphoning the power after um, they've done that. So that's, what's incredible to me. Um, what is prison gerrymandering? So prison gerrymandering, uh, I guess it's to, to take one step back when, when someone is incarcerated and is sent to a prison, uh, if they are in that prison during the census, there's a, there's a question for the state and for the census bureau. Do you count that person as living at their last recorded address before they were incarcerated? Or do you report them as being a resident in the prison itself? In all but a select hand, handful of states, uh, prisoners are not allowed to vote. And so if they're counted at where they reside, rather than, uh, which is in the prison, rather than their last known address, uh, then that area of a particular state, like, and you can presume that a lot of prisons are built in rural areas because it's cheaper for states to do that. Right. That that area will all of a sudden have a boom in population of people who neither choose to live there nor have any ability to vote. Oh. And so it can transfer political power to that uh, to the area around that prison rather than it, you know, them being 
you know, recorded as residents at their last known address. So it has, it has a distortive effect on representation and can enhance the political power of areas that immediately surround prisons at the expense of the communities from which those prisoners originated. So this week, this past week, um, gerrymandering the census um, came before SCOTUS. And um, on, the, on the question of partisan gerrymandering, they basically punted. Um, what, in your opinion, what was the reason behind like passing the buck on this issue? So the court has been struggling for over 30 years at this point to come up with some way for judges to determine how much partisanship in redistricting is too much. Uh, the framers of the Constitution gave the power to redraw district lines to the state legislatures, which the justices have long interpreted to be a tacit admission that redistricting is a an inherently political act with political consequences. Academics and activists have for decades been trying to develop statistical tests and geographic tests for differentiating between maps with you know run-of-the-mill partisan effects and those that are truly extreme outliers, the, the worst of the worst gerrymanders. Um, and the court essentially said last week that none of the tests that have been proposed work and that there is no way to determine how much partisanship is too much in redistricting. So they declared uh, partisan gerrymandering cases to be outside of their purview, or mm. to use the legal phrase, they declared it to be non-justiciable. Mm. Uh, I, I strongly disagree with that conclusion. I think uh, people should read the dissent by Justice Kagan. Right. Uh, she makes many excellent points about how the lower courts in these cases had no trouble finding manageable standards for analyzing district maps right. for excessive partisanship. If you look at the record, there, you know, case after case after case over the past three years, district courts have struck down uh, redistricting plans as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders, and they they found tests that were workable for them. And so the justices essentially told all of those lower court judges that they were wrong. Oh, um, and which is not a, a usual. This is this is the only instance I can think of in the law where the Supreme Court has acknowledged something is a constitutional violation, but has said that they are powerless to do anything about it. Wow. Um, and you know, the, abandoning that role of remedying constitutional violations—it's—it's—it's it's, it's truly breathtaking. Now, I, I will say that's the legal answer. There's also the cynical answer, which yeah. is that the uh, majority on the court, the five conservatives who are in the majority in this case, uh, they don't want the court to be seen as picking winners and losers in election after election around the country. And that's because unlike other areas of the law, the Supreme Court doesn't have the discretion to choose whether to accept redistricting cases for review. It's part of uh, the court's mandatory caseload. So the only way for the court to avoid having to rule on every single partisan gerrymandering case brought before it would be if it decided, as it did last week, that it couldn't rule on them in the first place. Right. So this could have been a dodge uh, because Chief Justice Roberts or some of the conservatives perceived this as a threat against the integrity of the court. Now, you can take issue with whether or not dodging it is more of a blow against the court's integrity than ruling on them in the first place. But, you know, I, I, I know where I side on that issue, and I know where a lot of my peers in the reform community side on that issue, but the, the chief did not agree with us. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, and he's had some controversial stuff, especially with the Voting Rights Act. So there you go. Um, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> you know. So actually, when I met you and Sam, like, has it, has it been almost a year or two years? I'm not sure. I think it's at least a year. I think it was like last <laughs> summer, to be honest. I think it was. I think it was last summer. Um, yeah. You and a group. You and this whole group of very brilliant statisticians and data experts were meeting to discuss 
fair maps. And I was really fascinated. I was like a fly on the wall, except I was at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you discussing some of the kind of like obstacles and, you know, but also trying to figure out how it would work. You know, can you explain what fair maps are and why don't we have them yet? Sure. I, you know, I will be honest. I'm not even sure that we in the reform community necessarily agree on a, a single definition of what a fair map is. Right. But um, generally, uh, I think it's it's not so much a, a legal idea as it is uh, an idea deriving from political theory, which is that in a republic like our system, all power should be derived from the people. And when gerrymandering occurs, elected partisans are using the tools of government to perpetuate their own hold on power. So an advocate of for fair maps would essentially be saying that districts belong to the people, and if the people don't like the representatives, they should be able to vote them out of office. Right. And there shouldn't be a built-in obstacle created by the legislators themselves to prevent that from happening. That's, that's the, the core definition of what a fair map is. Now, some people may think that elections should be competitive or that communities of interest should be represented above all other criteria or that districts should look neat and compact rather than having bizarre shapes. And some of those criteria may be in conflict with one another, which is where the disagreement comes in. But when you get at it to, from a core idea, it's that districts should be responsive to swings in the electorate. And why don't we have that yet? It's primarily because legislators have, for most of this country's history, drawn their own maps. And so they naturally bake in a little bit of uh, favorability for their own party. That's both all, all political parties throughout history have done this to a certain extent. Democrats were famous for drawing a particularly egregious partisan gerrymander in California in the 1980s. Um, And Republicans happened to have more power in more states after the 2010 Tea Party wave. And so they took advantage in 2010. But there's, you know, well, while I think it's fair to criticize Republicans for the gerrymandering that's going on right now, it's important to note that no party has clean hands on this issue. Right, right. Um, And that's one of the reasons why we don't have fair maps is because when everyone, when any party is in power, they're tempted to abuse it. My next conversation is with Meg Heckman, Assistant Professor of Journalism at Northeastern University. I first came across Meg's insightful work when I read her article posted on StoryBench. The title, Men Are Writing Two-Thirds of National Stories About the 2020 Presidential Race. Her research found that, quote, Men are writing the vast majority of national online news stories about the 2020 presidential primary, according to a preliminary byline count performed by the StoryBench election cover tracker at Northeastern's University School of Journalism. After I read that, I knew I needed to have a conversation with her. Like my conversation with Ben Williams, this is an excerpt from our conversation, and I will put the full conversation up at the beginning of next week. Oh, and by the way, you can read this article I just mentioned and more at storybench.com. I'll let Meg explain what that is. So StoryBench predated me. I came to Northeastern two years ago, so I'm going into my third year this fall. And a few years before I got there, um, we, uh, my colleagues started StoryBench as kind of an open source living textbook. And the editor is this wildly talented um, data journalist, science journalist named Aleshu Bayak. And he's he's great. So he's the editor of StoryBench. Right. He gets all the credit for it. Um, not only does he teach classes, he also edits this site and coaches students through projects that they end up publishing on this site. Amazing. So like that's all him. Um, and the rest of us love it because we can use it as, like I said, this open source textbook. Even before I came to Northeastern, I was using it at my previous institution um, in some of the more digitally focused journalism classes that I was teaching. Um, and earlier this year, 
he started working with some students to track coverage related to the 2020 primary as one of uh, a variety of, of projects that, that he has going on on StoryBench right now. And right. one of the things that they started to see, one of the themes that they teased out was that there appeared to be a bit of gender bias in the, the tone of the stories about female candidates versus male candidates. And so that has become one of a number of things that um, he's looking at going forward um, in terms of coverage for for 2020. And at the same time, I was, um, I spent the first part of this year writing, um, writing a book manuscript. So I was kind of off working on this book and, um, it has to, without getting into too many details, it has to do, you know, it intersects in many ways with, um, gender and journalism and political journalism. And so I had turned up all of this research showing the, the historical tendrils of, of what, um, my colleagues and our amazing students were, were kind of identifying in the, these early, um, these early tracking projects. And so right. we, we realized we were kind of coming to the same frustrating conclusion on parallel paths. And we're like, Hey, let's get together and see what happens. Um, and so we have now formalized gender bias as one of the things that's going to be getting tracked by StoryBench and by the journalism school going forward. Well, I'm so thankful for that because one of the issues in talking about these systemic discriminations and biases that we don't have some data or it's not even the gaslighting of people saying, I don't know, that's in your head or maybe your candidate's just not electable or all the bad stuff. But um, to actually see these patterns and then see who is behind the scenes, it's interesting to me that, um, that you were doing research that was kind of paralleling this naturally to the article that you ended up publishing in StoryBench that I was like, I've got to talk to her about this <laughs> because, you know, while I'm unfortunately not shocked about the, um, the way it's 75, 25 in entertainment business, it's kind right. of like 75% men. And we're talking about, bi- this is the bylines, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so um, I've seen that, but the bylines too, um, the reason it's frustrating to me me is because, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, there's a million reasons, but one of the frustrating things is that some people would think that that wouldn't be an issue. Right. That, you know, so tell me, um, what were you feeling as you were kind of piecing this story together? Well, so we... We were looking at a few other things. So we'd pulled, we'd pulled uh, several thousand national stories wow. and kind of said, you know, we have this data. Let's just, let's just see if we can do uh, a gender count on the bylines. And before I get too deep into this, I just want to give um, three quick disclaimers. Um, first, this is a tracking project. So, um, this is not the type of peer reviewed research that we may see in, in a journal, um, a a scientific journal or an academic journal. Um, that stuff generally is, is, um, looks backwards over a a huge chunk of, of time with a lot more data and it takes a little time to analyze and churn out. So this is really designed to be a series of snapshots between now and the end of the primaries, maybe up until the general election, to start a conversation and hopefully encourage journalists to to do better in a variety of ways and to just think about their own practices. So that's disclaimer number one. Uh, Disclaimer number two, I absolutely recognize that gender is not binary, um, Mm -hmm. but for the purposes of most byline counts, it's treated as a simple male-female. So just that. And I also understand that gender is one aspect of diversity. Um, It's the one that I have historically focused on because it is, it is easier in some ways to quantify than race class um, and some of the other, 
sexual identity, some of the other factors that contribute to diversity. And so I've looked at it as a way into the conversation, right? but with a full understanding that it is just a part of the conversation. So now that I've rolled out all the fine print, those were all all great disclaimers. Um, So I was really hopeful when we sat down to count these bylines that maybe this would be the election cycle that we would have gender parity. There was so much attention paid to the women covering Hillary Clinton's campaign in, in the, primaries and during the 2016 general election. And um, I I was really hoping that that was going to be a bit of a sea change. And this byline count implies that it might not have been. Now, at the same time, it is early. Um, It is a fairly small sample. And we are planning to do some tracking going forward looking at um, different types of news organizations of different sizes in different locations to see if there's any distinction there. And what were some of the takeaways um, from you after, after tracking this? What, if someone was, if a presidential candidate, if a female presidential candidate was, came up to you and said, so <laughs> uh, how's this going to work out for me? Yeah, you know, yeah. um, what were some of the takeaways you would want to tell them? Um, so, it's it's unclear if having like let's say let's say things were flipped okay let's just say by some miracle we had absolute gender parity so 50% women 50% men on the campaign trail and this right. field of candidates it we don't know how much that would change things because we've right. never had that before we've never had this many women running for office before like we right. have an actual sample set that we can look at, uh, which sounds terrible to boil down politicians into a sample set, but that's, you know, that's what we have, um, for really the first time. Um, and we've never really had a press corps with total gender parity. So the short answer is we don't know. Um, one of the things that some other research has shown is that female reporters are more likely to quote female sources and That matters because it injects more women's voices into civic conversations. And that's, that's really important. Um, So I think, and certainly a, a more diverse press corps is always better because it helps us guard against not knowing what we don't know. Um, You know, I was on a, I was on a public radio Colin show yesterday morning talking about this and just some other things related to the New Hampshire primary. And, um, you know, one of the other panelists was a, a guy, a, a male political reporter who's fantastic. And I truly believe that, you know, when he and, um, all of his male peers go out to cover uh, a campaign, they are absolutely being as diligent and as fair and as responsible as they can for the most part. But implicit right. bias is really, really tricky. Right. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that I'm aware of, you know, as, as a white person, whenever I go, um, and talk or write about issues of class or race, um, you know, I, I can be the most professional, well-intentioned, trying to be responsible journalist there is. But if I don't know that I didn't ask a question that I should have asked right. or that, maybe there's a word that means something different to me than it does to a member of a, um, another community, a community that I'm not a part of that uh, thousands and thousands of those examples stacked up over time can create bias narratives. Right. So I think that's really, that's the issue. And I mean, I've noticed that as well. I, you know, I talk to advocates and activists in many different groups and communities and, um, you know, like Rebecca Coakley, um, who's a disability advocate, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, a lot of questions uh, for people that are non-disabled are just out of their purview, right? They're not saying, you know, right. well, how will that affect voting rights for right. uh, the disabled community or this and that? So, and I, and I know that someone can't think of everything, but sometimes I go, I want it to be part of their job to understand how these different communities are affected by these different pieces of policy. Exactly. Um, you know, so that part is frustrating to me. Um, something that I found was uh, interesting in your article, you stated um, that uh, monitoring newsroom demographics is difficult in part because most outlets don't respond mm-hmm. to the American Society of News Editors annual survey, which is often used as an industry benchmark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would newsrooms respond to that survey and help with um, you know, transparency and representation and inclusivity? So um, the response rate for that survey has never been great. It got Mm. a lot worse um, as the industry started to really face all of those challenges that I was talking about before. So I think some of it is editors who are all of a sudden doing three people's jobs really mean to respond to it, and then they just lose track of it. Um, And I also think that, you know, there may be some level of, of, self-protection, you know, if your newsroom is not really diverse, it's something, you know, maybe you didn't think about it until you got that survey with the questions. And all of a sudden you're saying, Oh, that's, that's a problem. This doesn't look good. Um, but there is, there is, um, a, a fantastic professor, um, at, the University of Virginia, Dr. Meredith Clark. She's, I think, best known for her research on Black Twitter, but she's been working incredibly, incredibly hard to improve the response rate and also change, um, also change the way that the survey is done in the future to hopefully get more meaningful data. Um, because the other issue is, um, you know, it used to be fairly easy to survey the the news industry, right? You know, you look at every newspaper in a state, you you send them a letter or an email and you get responses back. But now, um, you know, newsrooms are sometimes combined. So there's one newsroom serving multiple newspaper titles. You have all sorts of digital startups and it's just incredibly hard to to surveil. Um, And I ran into this a little bit. My graduate thesis looked at women's leadership in digitally native news startups. My my graduate thesis looked at women's leadership in digitally native news startups. And I ended up having to use three different lists of digital startups to try and guard against missing newsrooms and and missing parts of the ecosystem. So mm. the the same disruption that has made journalism more challenging to produce and to support financially has also made it a lot harder to surveil the industry. That is something I'll, I'll bring that up really quickly that I, I spoke with um, um, Valerie Sperling at Clark mm-hmm. University. Uh, we talked about the financial aspect, you know, that this is still a business, you know, people do need to make right. money. Um, and so there, um, one of the things, this is going off topic for just a little bit, but, sure. um, you know, about the kind of, kind of clickbait horse mm-hmm. race journalism where people, um, people kind of jump in, you see people getting defensive already about which candidate they like, which ones they don't. And I'm like, Oh God, it's working again, you know, for journalists to put up the polling and Uh to create these narratives. And, um, so it's starting all over again. And I recognize that an aspect of that, that is financial. I mean, so, um, it's interesting to me. Do you see, um, some of the survival of what's going on in this new age, um, having it making financial decisions on how they're going about with um, publishing these different articles or how they're covering somebody, because I feel like we do have like a bit of an, I don't want to say outrage culture because there's such, there's so much we are outraged about. Right. Um, but I mean, um, do you think there was something to doing a kind of a bit of a controversial headline that on Twitter mm-hmm. we'd say they're going to get ratioed people do click and share it. Right. Yeah. You know, no, I, is, yeah. Um, you know, I think there's, a des- I, you know, I think there's a desire right now to quantify things. We right. are in this era of 
big data and we are, and, and I, you know, to a certain extent, I, I understand that desire, you know, human beings have access to more information now in the palm of their hand via a smartphone than, than they did in an entire local library 50 years ago. So I, like, I understand the desire to, to try and make sense of things by attaching numbers and categories and, and those kinds of things to information. At the same time, I, I think for all the reasons you said, just relying on political polls can be really problematic. Um, right. You know, I'm not a political scientist, but um, I have some friends who are, and they always say that primaries are incredibly difficult to, to poll. Um, particularly a primary this big, um, a field this big. And, you know, one example that somebody gave is that at this time in the 2016 cycle, Jeb Bush was the front runner in the Republican Party. And, you know, his campaign did not do very well um, by the time Iowa and New Hampshire actually voted. So, I think the the advice that I've been giving to everybody is just don't trust the horse race coverage. And if you are a news organization covering this race or an independent journalist covering this race, do everything you can to move beyond the horse race. I was talking to um, a reporter um, for one of the, one of the candidates, one of the Democratic candidates, hometown newspapers uh, mm-hmm. earlier today, and he had like his his boss had you know flown him to New Hampshire to talk to. I think he said he talked to sixty five or seventy um, people just about his the, the candidate from right. his town and or from the community that he covers, and you know that's that's great. It took time. Mm-hmm. It was exhausting, but you, you know, you have to do that and you have to talk to people who are showing up at events and wearing their favorite candidates buttons. And then you need to go down to the local Dunkin' Donuts and talk to people who maybe are just kind of starting to pay attention and aren't even sure if they're going to vote. And I think that can be, that can tell you a lot more about the race. Um, And I think it can also guard against um, falling into an overly simplified narrative because the more you simplify a narrative, the more likely you are to use the type of shorthand that contributes to bias. Fifteen point three million. That's how many people watched the first Democratic debate. Eighteen point one million. That's how many people watch the second debate. And that was a record breaker. Since those debates, we've seen polling change as commentators try and decipher what's happening and what's going to happen next. I knew after the debates, I wanted to have my own conversation with a political commentator. And it was at that moment when Rebecca C. DM'd me on Twitter saying that she wanted to have a conversation with me about the debates. It was kismet. Rebecca and I had a quick chat about what she and I thought of the first two debates and what we expect to see next. Rebecca is a speaker and commentator on women's political leadership and power. Rebecca has actually met a few of the women who were on that debate stage those two nights, and I wanted to speak with her about how she thought they did and what she thought of the debates overall. So here is my conversation with Rebecca. What are some of the conversations you've been having with people about the the two debates? Well, one thing, um, there were several other points, I, you know, in talking to people and chatting about it. One was, and you referenced Warren and Kamala specifically, and they were, of course, really good examples of this, to have an overarching message, right? That kind of all your policy proposals, all your specific tactical ideas fit within that overarching message. And when people hear it, you know, it just automatically resonates. So, you know, in Warren's case, it's her mantra about, you know, our politics, our economy, our culture don't work for everybody. And that's fundamentally unfair, right? Right. And for Harris, 
uh, you know, more the idea that, um, you know, this is an unequal society and old white guys are just not getting the right things done. Right. And so much of then what they talk about, you know, whether it was Harris about busing or, you know, Warren about some of her economic proposals all fit within that overarching message. Um, So I think we didn't see that, you know, the other, you know, I was really focused on the women candidates. I mean, I don't think the other women were as good at that. And, you know, perhaps it's a function of experience. I don't know. Um, Yeah, I was, it was interesting for me, which candidates um, maybe weren't able to present themselves as well as they wanted to. Um, I thought that um, my Senator Kirsten Gillibrand I think she got a couple of good points in there. And I think that um, Amy Klobuchar also got to Mm -hmm. um, say a a couple of great pieces of policy. I think they were both very clear about that. So difficult with 10 10 people on stage Mm -hmm. to really kind of get your point across. Someone who was actually, I was very surprised about who did so poorly, but to me was Biden. Um, To me, I always felt like he excelled in this type of arena. And, um, and I thought he would at least, I thought he'd at least just hold his own. He knew he couldn't say too much because he's already kind of gaff prone, but, (laughs) um, you know, but Kamala really knocked him and he didn't recover well. Well, and even, I mean, that's a whole piece of the discussion, but even prior to that, he sort of meanders, he strings a lot of things together that don't necessarily flow smoothly or make rhetorical or brand sense. I mean, it has to do with this overarching message. And I think the other thing, and this is also something I've heard uh, talking to people about it, that he didn't do that, of course, Harrison Warren uh, did really well was, I mean, this is sort of a slang expression but to go for the gut right to 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 look straight into the camera to speak completely you know completely and clearly and compellingly uh on you know warren has repeated it many times but every time you hear her talk about you know i grew up on the ragged edge of the middle class right right and and when kamala talked about the that little girl was me I mean, that's just right. right in your heart, soul, yeah. God, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they were absolutely great at talking on a personal le- uh, level. I thought that Julian Castro also did a really fabulous job mm-hmm. about that, too. Again, I wasn't surprised that Booker and, and, and Castro uh, would do well. Again, um, they're mm-hmm. people of color. They are somebody that, um, you know, people have a, a lower expectation which is absolutely absurd i knew they would be so prepared for this but um i i knew that kamala would do well i was uh i mean honestly i was so taken aback how sharp she came in right away though right at the beginning to set the tone of the debate yeah you know there was a debate prior uh, you know a discussion and debate prior to the two evenings about you know what tack would the uh you know the newer candidates take would they you know go for the jugular would they be pointed and um or would they stick with sort of litanies of you know policy proposals and i think it was very interesting that you know, Senator Booker, Julian Castro, all of the people who really shone uh, were not afraid, right? They just put it out there. They engaged with their opposition. They also, and this is something I've heard from others too, they connected those specific policy proposals about immigration and healthcare and so on to their larger message, right? So, you know, that really... And of course, Booker, for instance, has always been great at that. So, you know, no surprise that it was there to be seen, but wonderful that it was. Absolutely. And something that I was very thrilled about was any myth that was about Warren and Kamala and maybe being um, cautious or vague Mm -hmm. or 
not understanding how to communicate their policy or being too far left and, you know, whatever ridiculous myth had been put out there, they were quickly dispelled. Well, and related to that, I think that, you know, Amy Klobuchar's, you know, quick retort to Governor Inslee about, oh, yes. right, yes. about here are three pro-choice <laughs> women leaders here. How dare you? Right. I mean, yes, absolutely. You know, these women are so well educated, so well disciplined, so good at listening and just putting it there. And if it needs to be sharp, albeit polite, willing to do it. So I think that was also something, I mean, that was, you know, notable, Right, that you know, absolutely, there wasn't a step back uh, by them, but uh, just the willingness to, you know, coin a cliche to lean in. Exactly. Yes, they were absolutely great at um, fighting back and asserting their position of power. There, I I, Klobuchar absolutely did a wonderful job, and Gillibrand did a great job as well. Yes. um, Yes. You know, we're able to cut back and. You know, what do you think about the moderators? I thought Chuck Todd did an absolute awful job. <laughs> I kind of felt like I kind of felt like he forgot he had to prepare for this. It was so strange because yeah. I, I really do think that that uh, Guthrie and Maddow were so prepared yes. to have these conversations, and and Chuck Todd just wasn't. Lester Holt was great too, but. Chuck Todd just wasn't. What did you think about the moderators? I basically agree with you. I mean, I think that there's just this ongoing uh, challenge with him. I guess that's one way of putting it, right? That's a nice way of putting it, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you never listen to Rachel Maddow in the evenings, for instance, on her show, you know, when she isn't just completely prepared. And, you know, Guthrie has a different kind of show, but she always is also completely prepared. And, you know, it's kind of a cliche that women over prepare because, you know, they have to be twice as good as men or whatever. But that's to the benefit of those of us, you know, voters and listeners and people who are trying to figure this out, that, the you know, the comments are clear, the questions are clear. Uh, you know, when Rachel pointed out to Bernie that, yes, this is a quote, I'm not misrepresenting you. Um, yes. You know, it's pretty it's pretty important to see that um, for us. I would say one other thing related to that, uh, mm-hmm. which is that um, with the, Gillibrand and Klobuchar did this really well. They they, too, were very concise about what could appear to be small matters, but need to be precisely understood, right? Yes. And I think that that's just something, I'm obviously a bit biased about this, but but I think that's just terribly important, especially when you have, you know, 10 people on the stage. Absolutely. That's what I'm hoping, I was kind of hoping that some um, of the very, I guess, lower tier candidates with less experience. I will say that Mm -hmm. I was hoping that they'd be self-reflective over this weekend (laughs) and decide that maybe it's time to leave because I want to have more nuanced conversations with those women, with, with, with the, um, the more experienced candidates, because it's a disservice to us that we didn't, um, get to hear more yet. You know, way back in the day in 1992, in the, so to speak, first year of the woman, there was a really important op-ed that uh, Celinda Lake, the pollster, wrote after that election, comparing the women who won that year to the women who lost. And this is a sort of overview statement. What she said in that op-ed in the Times was experience matters, Right. You know, right. um, yes. it, it matters in political people, in public officials, just as it matters, you know, it's your surgeon or your plumber or your, you know, whoever it is. You want someone who knows how to do the job, who's had ex- time doing it and has a measured, uh, informed response. And it will tell, as you're as you've pointed out, the quote, less experienced people, you know, just didn't show that degree of, you know, thoughtfulness based on experience. Absolutely. You know, and having someone like Marianne Williamson on stage, I, 
<laughs> I thought was a disservice. Um, I know that she had 65,000 people obviously donate to her and wanted to see her on stage. Right. But I think that you can, I think most audience members saw that it, there has to be a level of seriousness when it comes to the issues that are facing the country and that we already have someone in the White House now with no experience and we've seen where that's gotten us. Right. You know, what were some of your other takeaways from last night? Well, there was another one. I, I mean, this is, uh, I was struck by the fact, uh, this goes to the period prior to the first debate and now today, where uh, the candidates uh, joined hands and went to Homestead, right? So, right. you know, Warren and Klobuchar, and today Gillibrand, Buttigieg, and Harris. And I thought, um, I don't actually remember that ever happening before, that in the heat right. of a campaign, immediately prior or post a debate, that people who are competing vigorously against each other, you know, sort of stood mm. up and said, you know, we're going to directly uh, address a, situ a deplorable situation and the policies here need to change. So I was kind of thinking, and I talked to a couple of other people about that, um, the idea that uh, perhaps with experience, perhaps with understanding the complexity of the issues and the, you know, um, incredibly precarious situation our country's in, that, yeah. you know, these people are willing to join forces. And I wanted to just underscore that because for me, that was such a positive to see that today, to see that the other day. I just. No, I love that. One of the things that I thought was, was great right away after the debates was there was a lot of data that came out. Yes. You know, we got to see who spoke the most. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to see who gained more followers. I saw, I thought it was interesting that uh, 538 said that Castro and um, Harris ended up gaining the most followers mm -hmm. on um, on Twitter. Right. Um, I I guess I'm not surprised that Joe Biden spoke more than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm kind of not surprised by that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, but it was it was great to see these kind of new data points so that we can yeah. kind of analyze and and look at this. Um, the snap polls right away showed that uh, Warren and um, that warning Kamala. Um, were the most surprising to people. Uh, I, I think it's more about people it's, who are hearing about them for the first time. Yeah. I think those are the ones that are surprised. Yeah. But, um, it, you know. I would just say on the data point stuff, I'm so glad you brought it up. One of my favorite all-time websites since it started is called Gender Avenger, and I know you're familiar with it, oh, too. Great. And, you know, they did a wonderful piece this afternoon, you probably saw, but they talked about, they compared the, uh, you know, amount of time speaking and, the, you know, all of that. And it is still exactly. true, although the women and people of color did better, that they didn't do, as you pointed out, as well as Biden and Sanders, for instance, last night. So there's, right. you know, there's still work to be done. Apparently Guthrie and Maddow got less airtime. I can't remember the specific yes. pieces of that, but I think that, um, that Chuck Todd talked more than half of the candidates on stage. Yeah. That to me, I was just like, I believe it. Well, it's not shocking, mm -hmm. but it's unbelievable. And that it happened. Continue. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think that one of the things that, you know, those of us who are, you know, activists and who care about these things is to keep um, kind of pushing that data out there, right? So that people understand that yes. if I really want to get what's going on here and I really want to make an informed decision and I really want to do what's right for my community, I want to make sure that everyone has equal time, right? And so yes. I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's a really, really, it's kind of like that, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Well, if you don't hear them, you can't be that either, right? Uh, exactly. So that's Absolutely. really important. Um, but I mean, the good news, what you said about, you know, Julian Castro getting a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of Twitter followers. And, you know, that was just spectacular. I was so happy about that. And I was also happy to see that, you know, um, 538 also did some data on 
favorables and unfavorables. Oh. And really, um, Elizabeth Warren's favorables went up by like 8%. Wow. Um, Booker's went up by almost 10%. Mm-hmm. Castro's went up by almost 20%. And I think it's because people are getting to know him now. Joe Biden's actually dropped by a point. Mm-hmm. Um, Sanders only went up by about 2%. His unfavorables went unchanged, though. Um, Kamala um, gained 10 points in those favorables. Um, Gillibrand went up as well, about 10 points. Mm -hmm. So overall, you could tell that the American people were interested in hearing these ideas and getting to know these people. And that's exciting to me. Yeah. And the thing that's going to follow it, which isn't so hot, is I imagine that, you know, the sort of opposition research and name calling and things like that to try to winnow the field and keep one's position. Right. And between now and September, certainly. So what, I think as a sort of call to action for all of us is this idea that, you know, we need to rebut that kind of thing when we hear it, right? I mean, these women are going to be, and, you know, the leading men as well, you know, they're going to be attacked. Sometimes it'll be a legitimate, so to speak, difference of opinion on a policy or something, but at other times it's not. And so I think, you know, now that they're more visible, you know, they're easier to go after. This is Maya Contreras. That was Obscene. Thanks for listening. Until next time.